Hello and welcome to the Plants and Pipettes podcast. This is our 100th episode, but it's part three of our 100th episode, which... Four! It's part four of our 100th episode. Life is confusing and short and also very long and, and chaotic and, and things are <laughs> happening. Um, some of us have spent the better part of the week vomiting. Mm-hmm. Sorry if that's a trick like, for anyone, but... um. Yeah. And the rest of us have been doing nothing i think i don't i don't know <laughs> i i would swap places with doing nothing to be honest mm. um wasn't yeah. a fun weekend wasn't a fun week that i had uh, until now um so i'm i'm also like i'm still recovering from a beautiful stomach bug that i got delivered straight up from the daycare from making my child <laughs> so i um some people call it a bug we've just discussed also if it was just like remorse at losing me from yeah. visiting as a house guest, as a really lazy house guest for a week, and then I left, and you just <laughs> vomited in despair for <laughs> the next my, week. My body can't take it. It's like when you when you get off hard drugs and you get like the the withdrawal effects. That was exactly yeah. what was happening. Yeah, having like a moody Australian woman sit in your kitchen and drink tea and <laughs> eat chocolate was <laughs> was a hard thing to lose. <laughs> Yes, mm. everybody should have one. And when we lost ours, like only one. When you lose something, you realize how much you, how precious it is to you. And this was exactly mm-hmm. my body's reaction to that. Then, <laughs> just like physical. No. <laughs> we need. To- That's what I want. That's going to be my. You know, the people always say, "Oh, what's your um your ordinary superpower?" Or what's like the you know, and it's like smelling milk or whatever. I don't know. Somebody <laughs> had something about smelling. Somebody had something about smelling turtles. Like I saw this on like uh, a dating Instagram site with us saying. Yeah, I can always smell when a turtle is nearby, which is <laughs> Yeah. Mine will be that when when I um when I leave people they have a, a physical reaction to my like <laughs> they have to wee like some sort of bodily fluid, they have to weep or vomit or like quietly I, pee in the corner. <laughs> yeah, I hope that this is something that you can get uh, accustomed to. Otherwise it would be really annoying to work with you. Like every time you're like, I'm off guys <laughs> and everybody in your office is like Whoa! Retching. I mean, it's fine for me. I've left. That's the whole point. Like, I'm out of that situation. Like, yeah, but I, I think you'd be also out of a job very quickly. I think that would be. How 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 quickly do you think people would realize? I I think depends on the context. If you work, but you work in like a science related context, I think people would figure out fairly quickly the connection between you leaving and suddenly the entire office running to the bathroom. <laughs> To, to it would be themselves. like it would be different for everyone like some people would just like shed a single tear i'd like to see a, quite a lot of just single you know that really dramatic like just from the corner of that <laughs> like beautiful like, what's going on just, <laughs> some people would just like get more saliva build up in that you know when you have like your mouth is just overly wet and you're like <laughs> some some armpit sweat maybe sometimes like people's toes get sweaty that could be one of them okay um, if it's that diverse i think yeah because then people would not like also talk the, about the it. hairs like the hairs <laughs> on your legs sort of standing up a little bit just <laughs> you oh, get like goosebumps left the room. every time you leave like yeah get... see goosebumps is a physical sensation <laughs> yeah fair enough like that would some be something that would only come up like after a few drinks at the christmas party somebody would mention like did you ever realize now that like tegan she just went to get a drink and i had like I get goosebumps every time she leaves. Like, is it just me? And then people start talking, and then it's like. I feel like I'm in I'm in Britain now. People would be too polite to mention it. It would just like, they don't yeah. know, and then they just like it'd be like, 
no, no, it's it's just not it's not socially acceptable to to mention that that girl is literally making me vomit every time she left. <laughs> I think if you had like a, if somebody had a consistent response, like if if every time I left you had like a consistent and violent response, like vomiting or peeing, like that would be <laughs> quite clear rapidly. But it was just like, oh, my nose is itchy. Yeah, like <sighs> a slight nosebleed. Also, we're at the age now where like something's always wrong. Like my my knee just consistently cracks. Like it's. Yeah, I, 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 my my knee could be cracking because you're there or you're not there or something like. Mm-hmm. But I'm just I think I'm just old now. It's just that's that's the age we've reached. <laughs> you can tell all these people, and yeah, you're just getting old now. It has nothing to do with me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of our friends just sent us a message to say that he had broken his wrist from falling down while skating, mm-hmm. like and ice just, skating. Ice skating, but I just feel like all the skatings are now like forbidden. We're like, our bones are too brittle. When you're young, you fall with confidence and you just like kind of bounce, kind of roll. At our age, we tense and we crack like into dust. I, I skateboards, roller skates, I'm, ice skates. It's out. It's off bounds. I'm holding the slightly too optimistic belief that um, I can still survive a fall. But I think mm. you're right. Like I, I mean, I, I had like minor things in in the recent past that just take forever to heal. Like <laughs> I had like a small thing on my on my ankle, and it still hurts a little bit to this day. And I don't think it will ever stop hurting just a little bit. Like I mean, even the stomach bug now. Like your son had it for what twelve hours, yeah, and you had it for like four days. That's yes. not that's not a good return. <laughs> oh, what fun. And we should do plant facts because it's it's already going to be long enough without us doing the preamble. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, I don't know if we can like keep it up with our weird guessing game because... Um, oh, I, yes, the guessing game. The ge- it's so all over the place. But I, I mean, we can try. Um, maybe give me something for South America. Oh my goodness! I have one. I have. I have oh, that's two. Perfect. I'm so happy. Um, although South America is, is quite, it's an entire continent, so it's cool. Not surprising we hit that. So the first one I want to mention is something I I heard about today. Do you know what a vicuña is? No. So it's. I think you should Google this. It's it's kind of like a a llama but somewhere between a llama and a deer with a long, elegant neck. And it's very beautiful. It's it's one of these, like, mm. sort of Disney princess deers where it has dark, like, mysterious eyes. And if you if you look at them, they're, they're mostly kind of smiling a little bit um, or they're looking puzzled. There's this sort of... And they have a baby face. Like, they have, like, the baby scheme face with, the, like, the big forehead. And they look... Like, if you, if you would have shown me just a picture, I would have been like, yeah, that's a baby llama. But I think the adults look like baby llamas. Yeah, they definitely they have that like disnified look where they've yeah. got like extra big eyes and like sometimes they're just they're just smiling. Anyway, so these live in um the Andes around the Andes and in, so in Peru. Plants? I'm getting there, Yarm. I'm getting there. Um, before we get to the plants, we have to first start with vicuñas, and then we actually also have to go through frogs. Um, so this is there's a publication that came out very recently. I think it's this year, and the discovery of the plant-related thing that is somehow linked to these vicuñas is 
actually made by a frog scientist. So this person was investigating frog populations um, in southeastern Peru and specifically looking at the Andes sort of at the border of where the glaciers are. So there's like, you know, glaciers and that sort of gives way where the, the, the glaciers, it's not cold enough anymore, the glaciers are not there. And then you get sort of more habitable land, theoretically. And the thing is, like, these glaciers, when they go away, there's nothing, like, underneath them, it's not like there's a lot of fertile soil. There's kind of, like, rock, and there's often been ice there for a long time, and it's, it's not a great place for, for example, a plant to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they what she found when she was looking there is that across certain bits where there had recently been glaciers and now there wasn't, there was these, like, patches of extremely lush vegetation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what are the vicuñas doing here? Fertilizing. They're fertilizing. So what they found out is that vicuñas are very polite animals and they like to sort of use a group latrine. So they all poop in one spot. They pee and poop, in fact. Um, And by doing that, they produce this really highly nutrient-dense place, which also has sort of organic matter. And by the vicuñas sort of going there and squatting and doing that thing. I don't know if they squat. I think they do it standing up. Um, that that produce, that sort of creates the the environment which then the plants can can come to. So the vicuñas are creating a landscape that otherwise might take, you know, decades or, or like millennia for, for like sort of soil to become, for it to be like earthy and ideal for plants. The vicuñas are mediating that rapid transition and letting plants move into these lands. Mm-hmm. It's kind of cool, huh? Yeah. I, I also have I also have another um, fact that has something to do with both South America and poop. Okay, so the the other paper that's also about poop and also about South America is this time about bird poop and about the Atacama Desert, which I believe is in Chile, in mm-hmm. the like north northern part of Chile, and it's this like hyper arid, like crazy hot, crazy dry desert and the paper is called white gold guano fertilizer drove agricultural intensification in the atacama desert from ad 1000 so like way back in ad 1000 it's basically the story is that people had a route a supply route where they were getting the bird poop this like guano which has um a lot of nitrogen it's like the original source of nitrogen um the people were using, you know, poop. Poop is poop is the OG fertilizer, yeah. um, and they they were getting that and like bringing it all the way into this desert. And because of that, they sort of had agricultural intensification that was happening. They were able to do agriculture in these crazy parts of the world. I mean, deserts are dry, but they can also be like extremely nutrient poor as well as being hot and dry and awful in all ways. But yeah, they were using these seabird guanos and these people. Um, this study, they were looking at like isotype values to to look at how there was a like, sudden shift in the amount of nitrogen within the crops that were being grown there. Um, and they saw that there was an increase in, in the nitrogen content in like the maize, for example. And then that also was found in the human bone collagen. So then the people are getting the mm. value from their crops as well. Yeah, cool. in, like I... I remember it's like years ago I I read an article about like the modern trade of guano because with the rise of sort of organic farm farming or organic 
like consumers wanting organic products, um, they often also don't want to have like chemically synthesized fertilizers. Um, mm -hmm. Although like chemically they are very similar to things like guano, but yeah, they they have like um, a way of of like preferring like organic fertilizers that are made from from animals and so like guano trade although it sort of declined at the end of the 20th century has picked up again but it's like a really like hard work because they often have to go out to like these islands where the seabirds are nesting and then like scrape off the guano and then transport it to to the mainland and then process it and then ship it off and then it's um used either in organic farming or sometimes you can also buy it in like garden centers as like your your uh, perfect fertilizer for your own garden um to avoid um chemically synthesized fertilizers uh so yeah it's still like a very valuable commodity to this day, like bird poo. Yeah, so it's it's it's. I guess it's nitrogen, but it's also phosphorus, right? This yeah. is kind of one of the big. Um, yeah, it's phosphate in the phosphate form. I think. Um, yeah, I, I I've I've heard a podcast about Nauru, which is this island nation, um, and that was they had like this huge resource. So birds would come and fly there, and then poop there, and they had just these in incredibly rich, like they mined for for this this poop mm -hmm. effectively which is fertilizer but as you said it's it's not it doesn't last forever like we use it much faster than birds can poop it out generally so this they it was it was sort of mined out it, it was it's not an inexhaustible resource yeah in current times also so i can yeah and and i have a sort of a follow-up fact for um the your desert fact that you that you mentioned uh, so that this happened in the desert where they were using the, the fertilizer. Um, I found something about a cactus um, from the desert, and I like I'm not 100% sure now um, if it's from the same desert, but all deserts, no, not all deserts are the same. <laughs> um, but uh, have you heard about the jumping uh, choya uh, cactus? No. Um, this is one is native to uh, Mexico, so yeah, it's not the Atamaca Desert then. Um, uh, and the the spe special thing about this cactus is it's often considered like jumping because it's considered to jump at you because it has these special needles that uh, or, or spikes that take very little force to get into any tissue like animal or human but like uh, require um, a multiple of the initial force to be pulled out again. They have like these microscopic little needles that go the opposite direction at the tip, sort of you, you like push it in. barbs. Yeah, barbs. Yeah, exactly. That's the word. So you push it yeah. in and then you have like tons of these microscopic barbs in the opposite direction and they give like great resistance to pull them out again. And the plant uses that to disperse not not its seeds but entire bits of the plant. So like you like an animal tries to feed on the cactus and then it's stuck it it sticks to the animal and then an entire bit of the plant breaks off is then carried away with the animal falls off eventually and then grows again. And this is how this uh, choya cactus is spreading throughout like large areas because it can like travel with animals and now also with humans unnoticed for a long time. I mean, the animals probably notice the humans that have it stuck to like their backpacks or shoes or stuff maybe don't notice it as much. Um, mm -hmm. But so they can. It's a bit horrific, isn't it? It's a bit terrifying. Yeah. I think one of my great fears is this, this thing of. 
I mean, it was like a comedy thing where they, they are fishing and they throw the fishing line backwards and they sort of hook, yeah. you know, it gets hooked into somebody's mouth or eye or skin. Like this is something that gives me shivers to the core of my being. And it's basically a, a tiny version of that, right? It's trying to hook yeah. itself in. and Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm I'm linking to um, a YouTube video where they're talking about this this cactus, and for some reason they have a guy there that like very like actively demonstrate how this works by like repeatedly putting his hand or arm on the spikes and shows how hard it is to remove them, um, and then he does it once. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's kind of nice of him. Yeah. Um, but then he does it again and again in like multiple shots. I'm like, why are you doing this to yourself? We've seen it the first time. How horrible we also this have is. replay. This is a thing now. We took the video. <laughs> yeah, it's Oy. it's horrific. Um, I I would advise to just stay away from these cacti in the desert um, because yeah, it's like so easy. You just like barely touch them and they're already like in your skin and then they don't come out. Bear. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, my my word or, or phrase I'm going to throw at you is fixing mistakes. Fixing mistakes. Um, yeah. I feel I feel like after you've listened to all of our our 100 facts, you can go back and you can try to guess which fact I had, for example, that I'm calling out fixing mistakes. Like last time, Miram, you were calling a lot of words at me, yeah, and it was because you had specifically facts on the topics right like yeah. this was very at least in the beginning okay. i did and then, and then later on uh i just looked at okay, my, my table and was like table lamb <laughs> wall <laughs> vampire vampire steak um, uh, i have something I, I think i have something for me fixing mistakes um sort of or fix fixing a problem is that also okay or does it have to be something that they did i think that's okay yeah um yeah, I've, I found a story, sort of looking at a different story before, I found a story about um, scurvy and uh, that it was already like in the 16th, is it 16, 15th century, 1497, um, the mm -hmm. Portuguese explorer Vasco de Gama he found that when he was feeding oranges to his crew, um, they stayed much healthier for longer compared to other crews that wouldn't, like, he didn't do like testing but he knew like usually when cr shipping crews would go out on sea for months on end they w would uh, get scurvy um, which is like a disease where um, yeah, it essentially comes down to a lack of vitamin C and that like breaks bodily functions and you get very sick from it um, and feeding oranges helped uh, and they didn't get scurvy so that was a big d discovery for him but he didn't really tell this to anyone and so it took again like um, several hundred years until 1747 when um, the Royal Navy, the British Navy, uh, realized that uh, sort of made the discovery again that citrus food helped with that uh, and also sauerkraut. So um, they would actually then... I was, I was honestly going to ask you, did the Germans use cabbage? Like this was coming up in my insults and i was like no tegan don't <laughs> no, be that person already the british don't always cabbage. ask the german okay but sauerkraut i mean yeah it also is very rich in vitamin c and it, it mm. keeps very well on long journeys i think even better than oranges i think you can store oranges for quite a while but um but sauerkraut only gets better with age <laughs> yeah. you can keep it in a huge barrel <laughs> 
yeah and probably also the salty air sort of helps with the flavor of it like i mean you salt the cabbage <laughs> anyway and it also prevents growth of stuff um so i imagine that yeah. let's just say it's it's not getting it's not getting worse right like an orange is quite rapidly getting worse and the sauerkraut yeah it is what it is you know <laughs> And my other fact that actually came from when I was, re- like, how I ended up reading about the scurvy was um, that oranges in the tropics, they are not orange. They are green. And um, it all comes down to chlorophyll. I mean, green color. Uh, because uh, the, the night temperatures are very important for the development of the color of the fruit. Uh, if the night temperatures stay above, uh, I think, above 20 degrees or something like that like i think what you call tropical nights um or 25 degrees i think is is the limit um then the chlorophyll isn't degraded the fruit completely ripens and is sweet and everything um but it looks unripe it stays green and when you grow the the oranges in colder climates where you have like temperatures below 25 degrees at night the chlorophyll gets degraded with fruit ripening during the the fall and winter months and you get orange fruit and, is uh, that is that for some specific varieties or cultivars only, or is that like I've a general seen, thing? I've seen if when like oranges that are grown, for example, in tropical parts of Africa, um, they are completely green. But when you cut them open, they're like orange inside, and like they are mm-hmm. oranges. So I don't know if it's like how how specific it is to certain cultivars, um, but. Yeah, I I don't know. Like I don't know if it's it's cultivar specific. I mean, but are we sure the orange isn't just pretending? <laughs> like because it doesn't want to get eaten, it's sort of refusing. My granddad had a mandarin tree, but it wasn't like it looked exactly like mandarins. It had you know loose orange tree. It had segments inside. It wasn't a mandarin. It was a lime. It was pretending to be a mandarin to trick children and punish them. I often have the the opposite now with like lemons that um, look green and like a lime, but they're actually lemons. I feel a lemon lime is like a close enough distinction where it's like a mandarin, a lime. I mean, it was was the most sour lime I've ever tasted and they were just hiding in wait, like plotting. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the oranges, they are... I mean, they're not their own species, right? Like all most citrus fr- fruits are weird crosses between different types of mm-hmm. citrus fruit. And just trying to find in the article there, right? What um, I it's a like the orange that we know is a hybrid between tangerines um, and the pomelo, or also called Chinese grapefruit from th- Southeast Asia. Yeah, um, I think we've discussed this before that like most of the citrus we have come from basically three or four. Yeah ancestral species and then we, we have like 30 different types of, of modern citrus something like this yeah and so if you grow them um in here in the article that we're linking from um plant scientist um on uh like plantscientist.wordpress.com is uh, it's a very cool blog i think not too active anymore but there's some really cool stories on there um and there is um there are some pictures that we're linking to and for example oranges grown in the gambia they are completely green and when you cut them open they are ripe and orange inside and um yeah and it comes down to nighttime temperatures and ox- uh, chlorophyll uh, degradation depending on nighttime temperatures do you have something for plant solving a technical problem you just said yes i know that you have something 
Um, so kind of not really, but I wanted to include this one. I I was looking for sort of the best of science stuff and I went into Science Journal, Science Magazine and just typed in plants and saw what they've come up to with in the last year. And I, you know, science is a great journal, but they don't have very much plant stuff very often. And the top hit that came up was something about plants gambling. So I included it because it's sort of a pet peeve of Yoram and I that there's always these statements that plants, you know, can shed tears or can smell fear or <laughs> like to go to the park on Mondays or what. Like there's there's a lot of these these studies which sort of make plants out to be very human, and this is showing that plants can gamble. So it's basically the idea that when situations are very bad, um, for example, when starvation is involved, when you don't have enough resources, there's it's been shown that like animals, including like humans, primates, birds, and also even insects, so bees, they can start to gamble. So uh, if you're if a honeybee is starving, they will make a choice to take nectar from a tube that sometimes has a ton of nectar, but sometimes has nothing. So they'll do that instead of going for like a tube that has always not enough and they'll slowly starve to death. It's also being showed for like songbirds that, you know, if they have one dispenser that gives them three seeds each time and that's not enough, they'll instead turn to one that gives either six sometimes or zero or something. So it's kind of like it's gambling. It's like taking a higher risk to get the reward, which is kind of necessary for survival if you're anyway not going to make mm-hmm. it out of the, the resource situation. So this is back in 2016. There was a study looking at the same thing in pea plants. And they basically grew the plants with their roots split between two different pots. And in one pot, there is a nutrient that is constant. Um, and in the other, it varies. And the constant one has not enough nutrients to actually, for the plants to survive properly. So it's it's constant, but it's a very low level. And the variant one has high nutrients sometimes and then very low nutrients sometimes. And if the constant pot has, you know, enough to survive, the, the plants will put most of their roots into the constant pots. But when that, that dips down below a level where it's, it's no longer enough for survival, they'll switch and they'll start putting most of their roots into the variable pot. So this is kind of the example of um, gambling. Hmm. I, I think I've read something about that recently. Was that maybe in the things that we can learn from plants from Montgomery? Uh, I think in that book, I, I read a section about that as well. I think it's very fascinating, like the decision-making decision process on a molecular level that mm-hmm. triggers the root growth to one or the other direction because like there has to be some temporal integration. So some like having to look at, uh, at the process over time for a little bit to figure out that like there is not enough in the long run in the one pot and that there's sometimes a chance of getting something in the other pot in the high risk pot because if you just take Mm -hmm. like a sort of if you're looking at it at one second you might if then one pot might have more nutrients than the other like the constant one might have more than the one where it could be at the zero phase right now so it's really interesting to to like think about how plants do that like figure out that yeah how that's being transferred into sort of signal, like mm-hmm. chemical signals and memory, things like that. It's quite interesting. Yeah, like they are much more complex than we than we often think. Uh, should I do a word? <laughs> yeah. Uh, USSR. Um, I have something... What? Slightly related, like... I looked up... Um, 
I looked up some plants that are named after people, mm-hmm. and there are some things like that are tied to the USSR. So um, the first thing is there is a Clematis Maria Sklodowska Curie, and mm-hmm. she's from Poland, but not at the time I think when Poland was part of the USSR. Uh, so it's a bit ragey. Uh, yeah, but uh, there's also a rose called John F. Kennedy, and he was sort of the antagonist to the USSR. Um, Even more Richie, I would say. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sorry. And uh, there's also, uh, um, no, it's not named after him. Uh, it's a different fact. I found uh, the favorite plant of Karl Marx, um, who was also not part of the USSR, but very formative for communism, which was important for the USSR. Um, and the f- Shall I guess what his favorite plant yeah, is? Yeah, maybe, you, but I mean, it's a very wild guess. <laughs> is that a fern? It's not a fern, no. Is it a cactus? It's also not a cactus. It's a It's a very, like... Is it edible? It's a, it's a flower. Is it blue? Uh, I is don't it think red? So. It should be red. Red is actually his favorite color. That is true. <laughs> yeah, shocking. That old gray. Um, yeah, uh, the like he named just the genus of the plant, so it could have many colors. They are often like pinkish to white, um, maybe some purple in there. Okay, what is that? It's Daphne. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, that's like a shrub that is often grown ornamentally. Um, and yeah, I don't know much about it. It's like a very large genus. Um, how sorry did you google what is Karl Marx's favorite flower is that how we got to this fact <laughs> maybe <laughs> seriously I I looked for a couple of people and um, for many there wasn't anything good like I first looked for like favorite flowers of celebrities and there was just like lots of like trash articles that like some celebrity took a picture in for their Instagram in a garden and then they say like, oh, look, um, I can't, I can't remember words today. Um, but so this celebrity is standing next to this like bush in the garden. So this must be her favorite plant, um, which yeah, I didn't include these things, but uh, there's actually for, for Karl Marx, he uh, wrote like letters with, I think this is with his niece um, and they, they played a game of confessions and there was like an entire list of things that he sort of conf- confessed away, was asked like his favorite virtue, um, uh, his idea of happiness, um, but also like his, uh, his hero, his favorite dish, his favorite color and his favorite flower. And um, his favorite flower is Daphne. Um, His favorite dish is fish. And (laughs) that's just like somebody who doesn't interview well. And they're like, what's your favorite dish? Um, um, Fish. Fish runs with dish. I don't know if (laughs) they, I think they they did that in German. So Ah. um, the rhyme is not that obvious, I think. Um, Fine. Fine. (laughs) So, yeah. That's why I found, and I tried to like look for other people, and I couldn't really find many other people that publicly, with like solid written record, said what their favorite flower is. So it was, I wanted to put up a list, and the list got one entry. <laughs> other fun facts about Daphne, which are also about as plant based as the rest of this podcast is right now. Um, she's also, there was like this uh, like Greek mythology of, I think she was like a river nymph or something. Or like a woman who just didn't want to be molested by men and then mm-hmm. was molested by a man. Um, Apollo was like 
trying to make advances, and then she got to turn into a tree to escape him, which mm. says it says a little bit about I don't know being a woman. <laughs> I would say yes, we would rather be trees <laughs> than be looked at by men. True story. <laughs> <laughs> and while I was looking at like um, plants and their names, um, I found out, um, like, did you know where tobacco got its Latin name from? Nicotiana? Yeah. I was going to say from the nicotine, but I think it's the other way around. Yeah. Like nicotine is named after Nicotiana. After Nicotiana. Mm -hmm. And Nicotiana is named after a French dude called Jean Nico. Um, and I didn't know that. Like I've worked with this plant forever and I had no idea that there was a guy called Jean Nico, um, a French diplomat uh, who is considered the, the, the first to bring tobacco to France. And he was introducing that first as like sniffing tobacco and um, then also to smoke it. And um, it became very popular, especially in Paris, um, which fits with like the stereotype of like the smoking Parisian. Um, mm. In Europe, they were like one of the, fir like, the first hubs of adopting tobacco and smoking it and really enjoying it. Uh, I mean, in the beginning, it was also thought that tobacco had like medicinal properties. It was considered to be good against diseases. I mean, kind of ironic that it's like a main driver of some very bad diseases. But um, yeah, that's where like the, the plant got its name. But not at the time. This was like um, John Nicot lived from 1530 to 1604. There was only later when Carl Linnaeus, um, like famous botanist who named, like set the foundation for like the modern naming of plant species. Um, he was then picking that story of Jean Nicot um, to name the tobacco plant Nicotiana tabacum uh, uh, after this guy. It definitely also makes me think about this discussion that's come up before about the fact that a lot of our our plant species names are, are named after like random white dudes who mm -hmm. definitely did not discover them and just like happened to be popular. And, you know, whether we should be going back to what were the, like, you know, the, the whole the nomenclature is based on what the original name that was given, but these, these plants all had original names in the place they came from with the people who lived there, not by some random European guy who liked to like snuff some tobacco in France. Yeah. And it's just like a problem of chaos when you, you try and upend this, but yeah, it, it definitely brings that into question, right? Tobacco was not developed, like, yeah. This is not a plant that originates from France. This and definitely was used for much longer than since the like 15th, 16th century when Europeans um, got interested in it. I found yeah, it interesting. Yeah, so even that like the evolutionary background of the plant wasn't there. Like the usage of the plant didn't yeah. didn't originate there either. Like nothing nothing came from France in this in this instance. Yeah, exactly. And it's in just many like instances. they <laughs> they picked it up, brought it to their home country, and now the plant is named after. after and they were this like, guy. look, I have discovered. <laughs> I mean, I, I I found an article and I didn't include this here in my list because it was talking about birds and not about plants, but uh, about the topic of of the problem of species having names that have racist connotations sometimes mm -hmm. like common names and sometimes scientific names like um there is there are plants oh, or there, especially there is a birds plant. there is a plant like that which one um there's a tradescantia the common name for that is wandering jew mm, yeah and now a lot of people are renaming it as wandering dude like d-u-d-e instead of saying wandering jew because the implication is yeah really not good 
and for in for, for birds especially there's also like a big problem with that like um, many of the birds that were named by sort of european ornithologists in uh, northern america they are then named for example like um, racist generals from the U u.s army that were like slaughtering indig indigenous people and to this day birds that are local to these areas where these indigenous people lived and were slaughtered carry the, the official names of the people committing the atrocities and mm. there are now movements to change these but as you said like like these names are not as only aesthetic they have a function and we have a scientific scientific system that uses these names which makes it so hard to to change them in a way that doesn't end up in more confusion and sort of misinformation between like researchers like over over time so um it's hard but it's something that's been tackled now and uh, more and more especially also as af um, after the black lives matters movement um some some campaigns found like wh where like stop being ignored that called for changes especially for names for, for for species that were named after like known racist like historical racists um uh, that are now considered to to be changed because of that so yeah it's a it's a big problem um and it's not something that's easy to solve but yeah so until then like i was also looking at like a long list of like plants named after people and so many were just like names after like some some random european dude and then i stopped caring for the entire list and i just included nicotiana because it's the plant that we used to work with and so um i found that interesting i think we did also mention this on a previous podcast that um there was a publication i think in nature ecology and evolution about species names we mentioned it on our um our plant book club podcast where it looked at i think that the, the species names that had like european names as part of the species oh yeah so this is a fact about birds um and and not plants but linked to what you were just saying them um there was actually and we've mentioned this on our other podcast the plant book club but there was a publication that came out in i mean this year in may this year in nature ecology and evolution where it has like a map it's kind of an upside down map for most of you who are used to like seeing uh europe at the top but you know australia's at the top in this map so that's a win and it shows the it's a minimum estimate for different countries um looking at bird species only where the latin binomial is based on a european person and as it turns out there's quite a lot of non-european countries that have you know species that are endemic to that region of birds that are named after mm -hmm. european mostly dudes i guess it's your turn uh do you have something on decisions i have something on i have something kind of on decisions and it's just a really general thing but it's a quick one and that's a win um and it's just the, the fact that you know plant cells can have totipotency or polypotency yeah that, poly. that means that they can become anything or almost anything right like they st are yeah. stem cells yes and this is just quite cool that yeah a plant cell can have a multitude of developmental potentials and you know this is how we can basically take bits of plants and add the right media with the right hormones and the right nutrients and make like a tiny fragment of a leaf grow roots first or first like form a little callus or like a cluster of you know bulbous cells and then grow roots and then grow leaves and shoots and i just 
thought that's cool and it's just another way that plants are better than you. Really quick <laughs> fact, that one. Good. Can you do that? No, no, you can't. <laughs> no, I can't. Plants can. Do you have something for concrete? Oh, I have something for I have something for concrete. Okay. Okay, something that we've mentioned um, before. It's just another shout out to a fact that it's it's cool. So, just as a reminder, there are seed banks throughout the world, and these are incredibly important research centers which hold all different types of varieties of of plants. We mentioned in the first of our 100 Facts podcast that we basically only eat like you know, a few crops. There's, you know, five or six things that are giving us the majority of our plant calories. But there's just this huge diversity of plant life, including a whole lot of edible plants that we we can get into. So uh, the first shout out is to a paper that came out which we've just talked we've talked about on the podcast some months back. And it's how the Svalbard seed bank has recently been used to sort of replenish seeds from another seed bank that was in Syria, which got damaged during the Syrian war, which is just a sort of a, a really nice thing. And I think that kind of rela- relates to concrete. I'm assuming there's some concrete involved there. <laughs> yeah, we're stretching, you guys. Um, but the other thing I want to link to that is back to the USSR. And this would not be a complete podcast without us giving at least one shout out to Nikolai Vavilov. So, Vavilov is one of our old school favorites. He's come up in a lot of our plant book club books, which is one of the other podcasts that Yoram and I run with some of our friends where we, we read plant books. Um, and he was just this this Soviet botanist, geneticist, agronomist who was really spending his whole life improving wheat and maize and cereal crops and as a way to sort of, you know, diversified food and basically feed the world. Unfortunately for him, he fell out of favor with Stalin. There was a another scientist, Lysenko at the time, who was sort of the the antagonist for Vavilov and Vavilov I think just disappeared he ended up getting arrested and was um, sentenced to death he died in prison which is very sad but he was sort of involved in keeping this Leningrad seed bank where they had all of these different crops and this was yeah an incredibly important resource and there was a 28 month long siege of Leningrad which was a siege by Germany I believe um, and during that time, it was it was really awful. Um, a lot of people died. I think it's estimated that maybe one third of the population of Leningrad ended up dying of starvation. And yet somehow the seed bank was guarded and kept working and these resources were kept for the next generations. And I was listening to the Anthropocene Reviewed, which is a really great podcast, and they were talking about this story of the seed bank. And the kind of incredible and awful thing is that by the end of the siege, nine of the scientists who were guarding the seed bank had died of starvation, and they were, you know, holding in their hands incredible amounts of maize, of potatoes, of rice. But they knew that if they they ate those those resources, those genetic resources would be potentially gone forever. So they they chose to save, not eat themselves, and thus save it for for the rest of the world to save it for the future. So yeah, it's a really incredible story. Um, but also definitely listen to that podcast episode, and also listen to that podcast generally if you don't already. Um, yeah, really great and 
Yeah, seed banks. <laughs> Do you have something for stable? Yes. Great. Um. So, okay, so my my thing for stable is a question of stability, and in fact, it's a question of mRNA stability. So there's this thing where we have DNA. DNA kind of hangs around in our cells, and it's passed from generation to generation. And then DNA makes messenger RNA, and that's kind of a very short-term thing. If you've ever worked in molecular biology, you know that. RNA, mRNA, it, it breaks down really easily. If you look at it the wrong way, your samples degrade. If you lick it, if you sneeze on it, if you pick your nose above it, whatever, it, it likes. if it gets too hot, if it gets too cold, mRNA loves to degrade. Um, it doesn't hang around for very long. And then there's proteins and they're, you know, so-so they kind of can hang around for a long time or, or not so long, depending on, on what happens. But what I really like about mRNA is that there are some profiles that have been used that are based on the stability of mRNA depending on whether the mRNA is protected. And it can be protected by ribosomes. So Yoram, quick quick mention of what ribosomes are. And so ribosomes are essentially doing the translation from the genetic code into the actual proteins. So they're reading the mRNA and then assembling, following the instructions of the mRNA, uh, assembling proteins and yeah, yeah that's it so the, there's a method that's called ribosome profiling and it's basically that you get your mRNA and when you isolate mRNA there's not just the mRNA but there's also like protein sitting on that mRNA trying to translate it like all around you and all of the cells there's like billions of ribosomes sitting on all this mRNA trying to make it into proteins and as it turns out the, the mRNA that's being, you know, more actively translated, that they're, they're trying to make more proteins from those mRNA, it's going to have more ribosomes sitting on it, right? It's like mm -hmm. it's busier, basically, that mRNA. So often there's also more mRNA in the cell, but often it's also busy mRNA. And it's been discovered that what you can do is you can get your mRNA and you can degrade the mRNA, you can digest it but in a very gentle way so that it mostly digests, but the bits that have ribosomes sitting on them, the ribosome kind of protects that bit of mRNA and prevents it from being digested. So now you can see there's just the ribosome and the mRNA, and then you get rid of the ribosomes and then you can basically sequence that mRNA. And by using this technique, we can find out which bits of mRNA are being actively translated. Mm -hmm. at a certain time, under certain conditions, in certain types of developmental stages, and so on. And this is just insanely cool, because we before could sort of see how much mRNA there is, and we could see sort of how much protein there is, but we couldn't see like at, at what rate the proteins were being made, and this gives us sort of a nice clue at looking. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the methods we can use um, that's mm -hmm. somewhat easy to look at how, how that mRNA is actually being used to make proteins yeah and to me when i whenever i see this this type of experiment done it's a reminder that like our textbook knowledge is very simplified like in the textbook mm. you have like one strand of mrna and then you have like one ribosome sitting on it and it like sort of reads across the mrna makes one protein and then sort of you think the cycle continues from the very beginning then like one more strand of mrna is made one more ribosome comes one more protein is made but it's, of course, it's all stacked. Like you make many uh, molecules of mRNA, you have more, many ribosomes stacked one after another going along the mm. mRNA and it's all regulated, like how many are entering that, um, how many are running across it at the same time. Uh, so, yeah. Also, in, in some cases, we don't really 
we've not had a clear idea of where the protein starts getting made because mm-hmm. we, we know that proteins start with a, a three letters, which is A-U-G. Generally, that's, that's, that's what starts a protein. But DNA sequence and then therefore RNA sequence has a lot of AUGs in it. And, and sometimes we think, oh, maybe the protein starts here. There's an AUG and that sort of looks right. But we might actually not be correct. And we can tell based on where these ribosomes are sitting also where the right start site is because they Mm -hmm. don't tend to sit for very long you know before they need to do their work they they don't go like way upstream of of the the protein they want to make they sort of sit at the start of the protein and then chug along down that that mrna until they get to the end and then they they hop off again yeah so it's yeah it's, it's got some really cool uses and it's just to me it's it's sort of just like practical and logical and this really clever thinking science um that's yeah, I like it a lot. Bit of a shout out that there, we do know somebody who's been working on this from our old work, and I just always, I always liked it and appreciated it, so I wanted to mention it on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give me a word? Shapes. Yeah, shapes is a good one. I have something for shapes. I noticed shapes like on the ground in the concrete from roots growing through it, and like when you see sometimes on a sidewalk, you see the concrete cracking from the roots of nearby trees pushing through it. And I wondered, like, how can that be? Like, what? Like, this is an incredible amount of force. Like, I can't mm-hmm. rip up concrete, so plants must be stronger than myself. Like, first mm-hmm. I tried to relate, like, how strong is a plant compared to like a human biceps, but I couldn't find good data on the human biceps. But I found some data <laughs> on the plants, um, okay. which is that um, the pressure inside a single cell. In, in a root can be 0.6 megapascal, which is approximately, I, like I'm not too familiar with megapascal, but it's approximately six bar. And that's uh, about three times as much pressure as in a car tire or roughly the pressure you find in a bike tire because they're a little uh, harder, like when you properly pump it up. Um, and that's the pressure that you have inside a root cell. And then um, from having that many root cells and then slowly growing over time, this is enough pressure to actually like a split concrete or even split uh, entire rocks. So there's pictures that you can find online where sort of a tree is growing its roots inside like a little uh, crevice in a rock. And then over time, it splits the entire rock in half because the tree roots are slowly pushing it apart um, just by having this like high internal pressure. And this pressure is called turgor pressure, um, something that not only plants have, also like bacteria and um, some fungi. So everything that has a cell wall, essentially. We humans, we don't have it. Um, Our cells don't have a cell wall that could withstand an internal pressure. So um, the pressure there is pretty much like atmospheric. Uh, And... Yeah, this turgor pressure is very important for many things. Like we talked about stomata opening uh, in the past. Mm-hmm. Tiny um, air holes on leaves. Um, yeah, but I found also some uh, other cool things where turgor pressure becomes really important. There's a, um, a plant. Do you know the squirting? Yeah. Can I just interject? Yeah. I've just suddenly realized why paper overcomes rock in rocks as paper. <laughs> True, yeah. Like. It never really made sense. It's like now the paper wraps around the rock, mm-hmm. but because it it's because the paper is a tree. Yeah, and it's inside the rock and it splits it apart. Smacks the rock open from inside. And you can actually, like, even with paper, you can split rocks. I think um, I've, 
I've read like in a history book that uh, in, in ancient Egypt, how they would split big rocks is they would drill holes and they would put um, fibers in there, like like paper fibers could, could be something like that. And then they would water them, like dry fibers go in and they water them and the fibers would swell. And if you have then like, I don't know, 50 centimeters or a meter between the holes and all of them swell up, over time, they create like a tension line across, like between all of these holes and crack off a huge slab of rock. Um, and this was how they would, without like any explosives or power tools, actually split rock. Um, but they so did have drills, is what you're saying. They did have drills, but they didn't have like um, mortars or whatever it's called, like what you would use today in in splitting rock. But I digress. So yeah, that's so that's like turga pressure is like very very strong in plants. But I found something where these pressures go even even higher than just what you would find like in, in a bike tire. Um, and that's the squirting cucumber. Have you heard of the squirting cucumber? Yeah, that's not a plant. It is. It's, uh, is it? It's called Ecbalium elaterium or squirting cucumber. Um, and it's not like a sea cucumber. It's not a sea cucumber. It's a real plant. Um, it belongs to the family of gourds. Gourds? Gourds? I don't know how it's pronounced. Burke? No, like, yeah, Gertz, I think. Um, uh, and yeah, it looks like a little cucumber, much hairier and spikier. And um, Gourds. Yeah, this one creates an internal pressure that goes up to one megapascal. So that's 10 bars of internal pressure. Uh, and when it, and then only a slight vibration is needed and it breaks off the stalk and then it shoots out a stream of water and its seeds and can shoot its seeds like several meters um, away. And online, and we're linking a video, there's like some really cool like video footage of these things like breaking off and then suddenly there's like a jet of water and seeds shooting out of this just from like the internal pressure. So the entire fruit works like a balloon it sort of has like an, some elasticity that builds up with time and then some like structural parts start to dry out when the fruit ripens and that makes it like break off also increases internal pressure and then um, it shoots out the seeds and makes and, and manages to disper disperse its seeds much further than if the fruit would just fall to the ground next to the mother plant um, and it's just really fun to watch uh, yeah, I'm watching it in slow motion right now, and it's it's really really impressive. Yeah, uh, and and do you know like some some other plants that uh, I think we talked about like one or two other plants that have like sort of shooty type um, mechanisms for seed dispersal? Because I also found a couple more that that work like this. I'm sorry, I'm I'm busy watching the video. What's the question? Uh, <laughs> no, Yoram, I don't know. Please tell me of the other plants that shoot. <laughs> Um, thanks for your contribution, Teague. <laughs> I'm watching the video. I'm actively learning. Um, then like what you, you should also learning. watch then is um, the dynamite tree. I think we talked about this one as well. Um, the, the dynamite tree is this like horrific tree that's covered in spikes. Uh, and it's, um, it's also called something... Wait. It's also called a sandbox tree, um, uh, and it has something. Uh, it has exploding fruit. Um, they look like little pumpkins, 
but when you tap them when they arrive and you tap them they explode with like an audible bang and shoot like the little um they're, they're called like <laughs> i first read shrapnel but they're actually called uh, um carpels um uh-huh. and they shoot them away with like 250 kilometers per hour um speed so there's reports where um they can land as far as 100 meters away from the tree when these things explode um obviously also a very effective mechanism of dispersing the seeds um there's also a good video on that where they're like tapping the thing and it like goes off with a massive bang terrifying um i watched the guy and he was like tapping it a few times and it didn't explode and then the third time just like bam yeah then there's also the himalayan balsam which you could have run into in the UK because um, it's very invasive there and illegal to grow there actually um, because it's so hard to manage it and also because um, it has such an efficient seed dispersal. There, if you if you touch it, it sort of flings the seeds away. Sort of the, the entire seed pot collapses on itself with like a spring action and flings the seeds away. Again, also with like buildup of internal pressure and until it gets to the point where it's like unstable and then just a little brush is enough to make them pop and then shoot the seeds everywhere. And um, this allows them, these these plants grow next to streams and rivers and so they can go downstream, obviously, just floating in the river. But because they're sort of shooting their seeds away, they can also slowly creep up upstream um, which makes them just very, very efficient in spreading across streams. And finally, I, there's something that I think we talked about in the podcast. It's called witch hazel. Um, it's uh, a plant that actually shoots its seeds out like a bullet. Um, this time, it's it's instead of water pressure, it's a it's a drying out process where um, sort of the, the the seed pot dries out and sort of um, pulls back on itself and then squeezes out the seed and f- sort of yes um, flings it out of the, the seed shell and gives it a rotation and that makes it fly really really far and there's a paper um, that analyzed this that we're linking to um, that has like some really cool uh, photography of the seed in flight as it's shoot uh, as it's shot out the, the seed pod um, and again this also helps it to get its seeds far out and cover cover new ground Tegan, do you have something on resource exhaustion? Is it just like a personal reflection? <laughs> yes. I mean, you're you're projecting now on the plants. Oh, I do sort of have something. Um, again, it's it's our last episode of doing these fun facts, so I wanted to bring up another of my favorite topics. Do you know what it is, Yoram? It's something related to conservation. Um, something I won't shut up about. Uh, biodiversity. Biodiversity hotspots. Piao piao. So this is something that I learned about in my undergrad. And it's basically this guy in, I think, 88, which is also the year that I was born, um, defined biodiversity hotspots, which is basically places on the planet which have the, the most biodiversity. And it's relevant to plants because biodiversity was defined by the presence of at least 1,500 vascular plant species being in that region as endemics, meaning they came from that region. They're they're found there and not in other places. Um, 
And based on this kind of hotspots, uh, Myers and, and colleagues, the, the authors, they define these hotspots and they cover a really small percentage of the planet, something like 2 or 3%, but they, they cover a huge amount of plant and animal life. So they, it's all about conservation. And basically, we have very limited resources to conserve things. And it's like, well, if we want to spend our money, what's the best place we could spend it on? And I really, I really love these stories because... Like conservation is often a very sad topic and this is something where it's like, okay, let's at least try to find some sort of solution. Like how we, you know, we triaging, we're trying to do the best we can. And I mentioned that there's a paper that just came out last week or something, I think in Nature Eco Evo again, getting a lot of shout outs from me today. Sorry about that. Um, and there they looked at hotspots, which were conserving not only terrestrial biodiversity, so that's kind of the original concept, but now they're also looking at trying to conserve um, carbon retention, which is obviously really important in the context of like climate change and the climate crisis, but also um, regulation of water quality. So they've now sort of made some new hotspots, which are looking at saving sort of all three of these together. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of, again, just an important Mm -hmm. topic to think about going forward yeah and we have to like focus more and more on getting like the most efficient action going and integrating yes it's kind of that we're sadly at that point where it's it's clear that we have to be doing all this triage triage where we're Mm -hmm. we're not going to win everything but let's try to win it as much as we possibly can Mm -hmm. do you have something for driving I'm trying to give Yoram hints about what he should ask me, and I was doing some hand motions on the video. I was clearly punching and not driving. I would win a fight with you so easily. <laughs> <laughs> I'm punching with my my hands in a very driving like motion. Also, you should put your thumbs inside, right? Is that is that correct? Yeah, put your thumbs inside and then punch a hard surface as hard as you can. No. Then no outside thumbs outside thumbs outside. And then, like, try then to aim for soft then don't, then parts. Then punch a soft, yeah, punch a soft surface. And that's how you yeah, don't like, break your thumbs. Okay, I, I have a fact about um, defense. So thank you, Yoram, for asking me about attacking and defense. That was really <laughs> intuitive of you. And it's so nice that after 100 episodes, you and I are on such a, a similar wavelength and understand each other to the depth of our souls. Yeah. Um, so... I wanted to comment on the fact that sometimes being oversensitive is a really good thing. And this is something that you find that's called the hypersensitive response. And it's basically a plant defense response mechanism where if you have something that comes in that's bad, usually like the invasion of a pathogen, something pathogen, like a, a virus um, that's mm-hmm. not supposed to be in the plant, one way the plant can stop that from spreading throughout the all of its cells and all of its leaves and all of its bits and killing the plant is by basically killing off all the cells in the area of that pathogen. Mm-hmm. So if all the cells are dead, the, the thing doesn't have the chance to reproduce, replicate and spread, especially if it's something like a virus where it needs the host machinery, the, the plant cell machinery in order to do that replication. Um, so the the plant just like hardcore shuts things down, murders a small portion of itself, and in that way prevents it from itself from getting really really sick, which I think is is very very cool and very very clever. And you can sometimes kind of like see this that that there can be like sort of spots of death on the plant. Um, yeah, 
But this is also because plants are much more modular than we humans are, right? Like they can lose branches and parts of it without sacrificing the entire organism. Whereas for most animals and uh, it like you can't just drop off an entire limb. I mean, there's some some special cases that do that, but very often this ends fatal. Uh, and plants because they don't have like a centralized system, but a decentralized system, they can just say like, okay, we can sacrifice this entire leaf or this entire branch. Um, I mean, we have redundancy. We have like some. We have some redundancy, but not a lot, but some. Yeah. Yaram, do you have a fact about sneezing? Yeah, funny that you should ask. <laughs> I have a fact about sneeze sneeze word. Um, it's a plant that I came across. Uh, I actually don't remember what exactly Did it brought Roald me Dahl? there. This sounds like it's made up by Roald Dahl. It really sounds like it is. Um, also, like the way it works, like sneeze word, you could think two ways how it got that name, right? First is that if you have a sneeze and you take the plant, your sneeze goes away. And the other is that it makes you sneeze. And this, I think it makes you sneeze. It makes you sneeze. Um, and it was used for that specific purpose um it was used uh, to clear out the sinuses by like ingesting some of the plant um and then you would sneeze and then uh you would feel better but today but is it just is it an irritant is it just like very fluffy or very like i don't actually like, know what peppery the, or something how is it making you sneeze i don't know what the the mode of action is but i think it's like irritating or something um it's not like it's not like a, a, a oh it, powder, it smells fluffy. bad it's a, it's a strongly pungent smell. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it also says like it makes it gives you like a tingling, numbing effect in your mouth. So um, similar to Sichuan pepper. So maybe that's also like from pepper. If you in, inhale pepper, it also makes you sneeze. Maybe it's a similar mode of action there. Um, uh, I think I found it also because it's called Achillea ptamica in uh, in for its scientific name, and the genus Achillea is uh, named like that after Achilles from the Greek mythology because it was believed that um, Achilles would be uh, would have treated the wounds of his soldiers using plants from the genus Ach Achillea, um, and that sort of fits in with my like my other name plant things. Um, that's sneeze word, like a plant that was used to induce sneezing, uh, but not anymore. That's quite fun, actually. Atigan, do you have something on peas? No. Uh, do you have something on fibers? No. <laughs> so great, because like all of this will be cut. It's just like, it's just... No, you can't cut it. I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I really like it. This is my favorite thing. This is the best part of the episode. Cut everything out and just put this in. <laughs> do you have something on tomatoes? No. Um, do you have something on nuts? No. Do you have something on energy storage? No. <laughs> do you have something on caterpillars? No. Do you have something on farming? No. Do you have something on agrochemicals? I don't even know what that is. What's an agrochemical? <laughs> chemicals of the agro kind um no. <laughs> do you have something on surveillance you know like agro in, in like australian english is kind of like to be angry like don't get so aggro yeah in german as like, well aggravated okay no um do you have something on flying no do you have something on diving no do you have Where something are you even getting these from 
I don't know. I can't. I can't even like. I'm okay. I'm just gonna end on this one because it's it's the easiest thing to do, and it's it's very predictable that I would bring this up because it's kind of the original topic that I researched when I became sort of a real scientist when I moved into the lab. Um, do you know what it is, Yoram? What's one of the first things I ever worked on? Uh, on on PPR proteins. Yes, and what do PPR proteins do? Uh, I have no idea. They regulate something. Aren't they something with like RNA binding? They, yeah, bind. And also what I was studying is a certain type of PPR protein that edits mRNA. And this is, again, something that kind of disrupts the central dogma, this idea that DNA that we inherit from our parents is reliably made into mRNA that basically is a copy of it and then that is exactly the the instructions that read the protein. As it turns out, sometimes those mRNA are changed, they're edited, the letters in the code are altered before the protein gets made. And a really common type that happens in plants, specifically in plant chloroplasts and mitochondria, is that the mRNA gets changed where the letter C in the mRNA is turned into a U. And this is what the PPR proteins do. And this is really cool because when you change the C to the U, you can actually change what amino acids you end up putting in there. Um, but you can also do things like create start codons. So if you have a CG, that doesn't, that doesn't, that makes an amino acid. But if that C gets changed into a U, suddenly that AUG, that's an instruction to start things. And then you can also create stop codons so you can tell the protein to stop being made at the same time. So I'm mentioning editing at the very end because it's kind of the start for me. Um, and I also want to mention it because one of our friends was working on this recently and he once began one of his talks as something which is like, mRNA editing is literally happening all around you. Like, while you're here, literally billions of mRNA. <laughs> I'm getting edited every second and I thought it was just such a beautiful way. Yeah. I mean, it's it's true about so many molecular processes. You could basically say it about anything, but it was just such a, a beautiful and dramatic way to introduce the topic of CTU editing to the audience. So yeah, yeah shout out to that friend. Um, really cool. Yes. These were our 100 facts for our 100th episode. That is actually four episodes. Um, it was a lot of fun researching all of these things. Um, I'm sorry that sometimes it was a bit of a stretch. I'm not so sorry for my computer facts, just a little bit. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, but like <laughs> next week, uh, we will be back to our regular schedule with um, less facts. But other cool things, probably some more stories from the world of molecular plant research. Um, thank you for listening until now. If you want to give us more cool facts or other input or feedback, you can reach out to us on social media. On Twitter, you can reach me. That's at Plants Pipettes. On Instagram, sometimes Facebook, it's at Plants and Pipettes. There you're talking to me. Uh, we also have a website, plantsandpipettes.com, where you can find, first of all, this podcast and more information with all of the links, um, but also really cool articles that we write um, about the world for, of plant molecular biology. Um, and there's lots more stories there, uh, much more than we could ever put in a podcast. And as always, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And thank you and goodbye. Bye.